This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. Before we start the episode, just a note on the sound. It's not quite up to the standard I would have liked it to have been. I interviewed Martin remotely while he was in his office. And while he found the quietest corner he could, there are still times when life in a busy design agency sort of happens around him. But hopefully you can sort of take it as an immersive introduction to what it's like to be him. Normal quality will be resumed next week, I promise. And so over to Martin. Of course, we, you know, we had this internal design meeting to realize we saying, like, who can come up with the most ridiculous idea and let's make it happen. There's a bar at the back and it has this little fountain with this sort of like various sort of classical fish um, has a little fountain of water coming out of his mouth into a, um, to a shell. And I think that was one of those sort of moments where we were like sort of, we say, yes, let's do that. From Living Etc. magazine, this is Home Truths, a show about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pip McCormack, and on the show today, how Martin Brudnitsky created a design agency behind most of the most iconic restaurants, bars and hotels that have opened over the last 15 years or so, and still found time to create residential spaces and his own product line too. Indulge me in a little name drop moment here. I was lucky enough to be invited to the relaunch of the famous Ivy restaurant back in 2015. Sort of pinch me perk that occasionally comes with the job. Perched at the bar, sipping as inconspicuously as I possibly could on a dirty martini, Goldie Horn was sat on a banquette right behind me, reflecting the glittering, mirrored surfaces of the bar. This is the sort of place that Martin Brudnitsky designs where chances like me go to feel fabulous, surrounded by a glamour so comfortable it can't help but also feel like home. From places like Soho Beach House Miami to Scots, from Annabelle's to Sexy Fish, Martin has been behind almost everywhere you'll have read about A-listers leaving in the papers. But if his meteoric rise, which has seen him open offices in London and New York, have his own product arm and build a large team, started off with the fitting out of the chain restaurant Strada, a much-loved outlet, but with a slightly different vibe to what we're used to seeing from him. Before this episode, Martin gave me five milestones in his career which he thinks helped him go from one end of the restaurant spectrum to the other, becoming one of the most sought-after names in the business along the way. Though it wasn't the career his parents might have chosen. You know, I was growing up, both my mother and my father wanted me to have a proper job. And a proper job was like being an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. And um, this was sort of interesting because my mother worked in, in, sort of in the creative industry. She, she was a uh, retail merchandiser. So what I did, I enrolled at the University of Stockholm studying business. And I did that for two years, after which I did some modeling and I sort of traveled to Japan and Paris, et cetera, et cetera. And then in within all of that, uh, a friend of mine, a very, very good friend of mine, had gone to London to study interior design. And I remember he got back after his first sort of uh, term uh, for Christmas and he sort of showed me what he had done. I remember looking at thinking, like, oof, I can do better than this. And off I went. So where did you go? Off you went to where? To London, from Stockholm. And so how did you start things moving? I mean, what did you do when you arrived in London? 
it was quite a liberating. You know, Stockholm is a very small town and uh, you sort of know most of your circle and other people. You're sort of quite known. You know people and they sort of know you. And what I really loved about London was sort of the anonymity. that you'd re- I didn't really know anyone, which I quite loved at the time. You know, you made friends and you sort of, you know, you daydream about what you were going to do next. And uh, then, uh, you know, the s- school sort of came to an end. And at the time, Sweden was not part of the EU. So I basically, I had to, I had to go back. So I went back to, uh, to, to, to Stockholm. And really, it was in the middle of a very bad recession. So I mean, there were no jobs around. And I sort of stayed in Stockholm for about six months. And uh, then I think about after four and a half months, one of my old teachers contacted me and asked me if I wanted to come and work for him. It was really great. So I did that and I got like a year's visa to do that, which was sort of fantastic. I thought I have a year's experience, which is really good. And then luckily at the end of that, Sweden joined the EU. And so what were you doing for your old teacher for that year? Uh, So basically he, his name is Michael Wolfson. He is an architect who set up uh, Sahadit Studio. So he had many, worked with her for many years, and he had just started his own um, practice. And he was my favorite teacher. He was really, really, really brilliant. He's still, still brilliant. And uh, so basically it was just him and me, I was assisting, assisting him, and I was just learning so much. And because what he did, of course, was that sort of deconstructivist movement, really, it was moving all the pieces. But as well, beyond that, he did like by classical interior as well. So I sort of learned this sort of extreme modernism, as well as a very classical approach to interior design. So it was very, very, very exciting. Well, this is really interesting to me, because I sort of think of you as starting off at David Collins. But having this sort of um, formative experience with an architect must have put you in really good stead later on in your career, I imagine. No, absolutely. That's, that's so true. Then after that, I sort of went and worked for David Gill, the gallerist who represents a lot of great designers and artists. And I remember I was like assisting in sort of getting furniture produced for Garus de Bonetti, these French designers. And um, it was just sort of mind-blowing sort of to really sort of look at these sort of more sort of modern Baroque pieces and how you would sort of make them come together and realize them. So I learned lots from that as well. And then after that, I went and worked with David Collins and sort of entered that world of high-end interior design. Oh, yes, David Collins. And I first heard of you when you were coming out of this agency. But how did you get into it in the first place? Well, it's quite funny. Uh, another good friend of mine, um, after I sort of left David Gill, I was sort of doing some freelance work. And uh, then a very, very good friend of mine uh, wanted to introduce me to David Collins because David was looking for people. And sort of David interviewed me and then gave me, offered me a job. And I turned up Monday morning and everyone was just wondering, who is this person? <laughs> what sort of things did he ask you in that interview? Oh, God, I can't remember. It's so long time ago. But I had a little, portf- had a little portfolio with me and he's looking at the work and my drawings and my sketches and stuff like that. It was nothing on towards. I wasn't suggesting there was. Anyway, there were some incredible projects coming out of David Collins at that time. What sort of things were you working on around them? So when I started, I started out working on this dog furniture, restaurant, tables, chairs, bonquettes, and uh, wall lights and chandeliers. That's sort of uh, the first thing that I did when I worked with David. And uh, the first restaurant I worked on was one in Dover Street called Vendome, which was a great little project. It was this restaurant all in red. 
was a fun, fun project to do. And then after that, I gradually wanted to work on the Criterion, which was super exciting at the time. And that was for Marco Pierre White, who was one of London's big chefs. And, uh, and then on and so forth, and I ended up sort of working a lot in New York with David up until I decided to, to move on. And so how long were you at David Collins? Uh, for about four years. And how did you decide it was the right time to move on? What was the impetus for that? Well, it just came that sort of time. Uh, a friend of mine sort of asked me if I wanted to do some things with him. And I sort of, sort of thought, let's just sort of try and see, see what happens. It always comes a time when you sort of feel like it's time sort of to move on, to move on to something else. And, uh, you know, and myself in my own business, I encourage Encourage if people feel that it's their time has come, then great. I think what's really interesting to me is that I see a really strong through line between the David Collins aesthetic and your own, and there's a sort of thread that runs through. I wonder if you agree with that, and also if you think it's because you learned so much under David that you took it with you, or whether David hired you because your tastes were complementary, or whether you were really influenced by him. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to sort of say. I mean, what I learned at David was was really how you actually put together a project. That was the, the big learning curve for me while I was there. But I mean, the projects I do today, I, I can understand what you say when you say there is a um, there is a link, but that link is more because we are probably inspired by the same sort of periods and same sort of thing. And this, but I think our, our style, my style today, is very different from what David Collins Studios sort of produce. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true. I think that's definitely right. And I just I just remember when you first came to my attention as a journalist and doing the opulent restaurant Scots, and you'd come from doing opulent restaurants like the Criterion for David, and it certainly seemed like you were his protege. But <laughs> I wonder what day one looked like when you set up by yourself. How many people you were? Where were you working from? Well, when we started, we were sort of my little flat, at a tiny little flat in, in Fulham, actually. And um, we, how many were we? started out just being, I think we were two. And then very quickly, within the first six months, we became six. And we moved actually into an office, into the building where I'm still today, but I'm not in that, that same space. But it's sort of, the whole thing sort of evolved very quickly. Do you remember the feeling of those days of being a young agency? And, and did you feel like you had to, um, to sort of prove yourself and going up against the big boys and, how, how was it back then? Oh, gosh. Um, um, I mean, it was a lot of hard work, uh, but I was always very busy. So I sort of was just focusing on getting the work done to the best quality and the best design that I could do. That's always sort of been my focus to make sure that the projects are successful. I didn't really think about, I never really thought about what other people are doing or sort of think about, I, I, I need to win some sort of battle. That's never been me. What did you find tricky about that time? What were the, what were the biggest uses of, of your time? Uh, back then, because the studio was so small, but I did everything. I mean, I did my own bookkeeping and I did invoices. Uh, it's something I've always been very good at, figures and numbers and stuff. So that was really easy for me. And spreadsheets, I love spreadsheets, love being very organized. So that all um, fitted in really well. I mean, the big challenge was always the next project, getting the next project. That was, that's, I think that that, what, that probably what takes up most of your, your brain time outside designing and sort of the admin is like the next project. And how are you getting new projects? Because you mentioned earlier you had some friends who'd put you up for things, but that only goes so far. How was work sort of coming to you? Was it word of mouth? 
Well, I, I was introduced to Moes Tolstrup, who was a restaurateur, a Danish guy who uh, basically had Daphnis and he had the collection and Pasha. And uh, Belga Group, the CEO was Andy Bazadoni. And so I basically met him through Moens and through that, I then started doing the Strada brand, sort of created that with them and sort of rolling that out. So it's sort of, I sort of focused a lot on doing these sort of rollouts, which means you do a lot of sites of one sort of concept. And that is sort of what sort of sustained me. And is that quite a profitable way of working? Because because you sort of come up with a template and it goes out again and again. Presumably it's quite an efficient use of your time. That 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 is sort of the intention, but it sort of never really works out like that. As a designer <laughs> as a designer, you sort of need to think about what I sort of call the components. When you do these sort of roll-up projects, what are the components of the design? What are the things that are always going to remain the same? And what are the things that can change between the different sites? So that's how I sort of approached it. So sort of very sort of diagrammatical, basically. So I sort of knew, like, these are the things that will stay the same and these are the things that can change. Because clients sort of didn't want so much to have this sort of Starbucks, Starbucks mentality. Everything sort of looked exactly the same. They wanted to, things to change between the different different units a little bit. Then going from Strada to Scott's is quite a big step change. How did that come about? So Scott's came about because uh, Capri's Holdings was a uh, was a part of Belga Group. And I sort of had met the guys who were running it. And uh, I we did, uh, together we did uh, Daphnis in Barbados. So we had that experience. And then when Richard Caring bought Caprice Holdings and Strada. Basically, I was introduced to Richard. And uh, at, at the same time, they got they acquired Scots and I was asked to do it. Do you remember what that project was like to work on? It was a very interesting project because it had a lot of, uh, there were a lot of sort of issues around the projects with planning and the licensing and the neighbours. So it was a very interesting project working. Just to sort of see how you resolve all these issues that you can come to the end and you can open the restaurant. So it was, I, I learned a lot from that project. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think this was the first time I got a press release about you. Was this when you first took on PR? Correct. That was around the time I started taking on because as I knew this was an opportunity, so I needed to, you know, grab it with both hands, and I did. And did that feel like an important business strategy to sort of get press and gain notoriety and, and to grow the business in that way? Yes, it was very important. It's always been a very important part of basically for me to make sure that I have the sort of right material, that I actually have the, the photography and, you know, and as well have the documentation to back up the design story, et cetera, et cetera. So I sort of started doing that. So it's great for now today. We, we can sort of go back to sort of the beginning because I have photography on those projects. Even when we did the rollouts, we always did that because I always felt it was important to have that a record beyond the drawings that you produce. I just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you a little bit about Harlequin, the high fashion fabric and wallpaper brand that takes inspiration for texture, colour and patterns from the catwalk straight into your home. Jump into Harlequin's book of little treasures, a magical collection of fabric and wallpaper, new for 2020. To find out more, follow Harlequin on Instagram at harlequinfw for inspiration and links to their innovative digital design book, Harlequin the premier destination for inspirational design and colour.
did you grow quite quickly after Scots? Because it got you so much notice. Um, not massively. It was very sort of steady. And um, uh, from that moment on, as you said, a lot of people then noticed me. So I got more inquiries. I was doing more sort of work. But it grew very steadily until I sort of met sort of Nick Jones, really. And uh, and through Richard Carey, because he he sort of uh, acquired part of Silver House. So I was introduced to Nick and we sort of started work together on uh, Chiconis in LA. And then after that, we did Soho Beach House. And that was a big moment because especially for, for America and everyone noticed that project. So that was sort of like a massive lift for the business. Yeah, you know, Soho Beach House was such a big moment in design. I remember writing about it when it first opened. I had um, Linda Bronke on the podcast already and we talked about it then with her because I think it was the first project she worked on when she first joined your agency earlier on in her career. Mm. I mean, it was such an iconic moment. I think it was the first Soho House that wasn't in a city and it just captured the mood so well. It felt from an outsider's point of view that like you were part of every decision, every sort of design idea in that space seemed to come from you and it was a really incredible project. Did it feel like all eyes were <laughs> on you at that moment? Oh, I don't know. I never think like that. I mean, I have a very low ego. Basically, I don't really, I, for me, it's about the job. It's about learning and understanding. And I think working with Nick Jones was, he's such a genius. So it was like, I wanted to be like this sponge that just soaked up, you know, everything he was saying, because always he sort of had a very, very strong sort of point of view. And as well, he sort of would involve you in to sit, be part of, as you sort of said, the sort of wider team. And I remember when we did Chicone in LA, I and mean, I even said in on this sort of, the sort of food advisory meetings where they had this food PR advice and then what and what they couldn't serve in the restaurant. Fascinating. Sort of see between different parts of one country how, how different they are. So um, so I love lots. And I imagine that because the team was growing so much, you're not on site every day, you know, picking lamps and you're sort of in more of a overseeing kind of role? Yes and no. At that point, we were, we were 18 people and I was very involved in the whole design process. I mean, I would travel with Nick and... Uh, I would sort of pick most things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I was very involved. But then after that, that was sort of like 2008. And, you know, I think we had sort of a big recession. That sort of happened, but it, that time didn't affect me. I just basically grew from 18 to 45 within sort of 12 months. So but it's super busy here. Well, it was incredible. I mean, it's incredible in any time. But as you mentioned, in a time of recession, it's it's remarkable. What do you think it was down to? Because I was working with these sort of like lifestyle brands that people just wanted to go out to a fabulous restaurant where they do want to be part of um, a lifestyle brand that offers food and spa like, etc. Spa experience like like uh, So House. And ultimately, working with big brands led you to opening your office in New York in 2012. So um, it seems to me like you know, doing something like that comes up with so much responsibility. You've got more staff, more overheads. How, so what was going on in your mind at this time? So the whole whole way that started, um, uh, I was uh, given a project in New York, the Beekman Hotel, and the, 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 the clients had asked me how would I service this project. So I sort of, sort of looked at just basically renting a couple of desks and getting some people, some sort of boots on the ground, because I, I've always known that 
American clients find it very difficult to navigate the Atlantic to understand the water. So I think unless you are in America, they, they find it very difficult to employ you. So I sort of knew if I wanted to do more work in America, I needed to have an office there. So I sort of thought this was a an interesting test just to see how it would work out. And I had a very big project, so I thought I'll sort of do it. And then for some sort of reason, we just got more and more work. It's quite interesting. We had never completed anything in America, more than Soho Beach House. And now we did like a priest in New York and we had done Chaconis in, uh, in LA. But just those three projects was enough to give us more and more and more work. It was fascinating. You know, your output was exploding around this time. I've just been reminding myself of how many iconic places you were working on from uh, around this era. You know, from the Ivy relaunch in London to Sexy Fish and Dean Street Townhouse and Hicks and the list is endless. What was your day-to-day involvement? Because you couldn't have been on every site all the time. And I imagine the client wants time with you because, you know, I guess you're being hired for you. How does that work? Yes, no, absolutely. And I, and I do still do all the sort of client-facing presentations. But uh, the, the way it works, we are, we're, we're, we're sort of a team. I'm a part of that team and I fit in like everyone else to a process that I have established with a team and how we work. So basically I'm part of a decision-making making process in the studio and it's quite a, it's quite a sort of tight and very efficient process we can get from A to B and because, you know, we do commercial projects, so you have to be very efficient how you approach it and we... So that's that sort of system that I've designed and it works very well. I'm not more important than anyone else that works here. Do you ever miss the simplicity of the old days when it was just you and someone else in a room and, and you were picking every piece? No. <laughs> it's, I, I believe in evolution. Um, you know, if, I, if, if, that, if that was the case, I probably would have stopped. You know, I, 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 like, I, like, I, I like progress. I like change. And I like to move forward and I like to learn and I like to understand and you know without things changing you know you're stuck in a rut which I I wouldn't want to be. Well I guess you must have learned quite a lot when you launched your own range and objects in 2015 of your own products. Yes. How did that come about? So but I always wanted to do furniture and in in a way I sort of created this studio to uh, get the sort of uh, get people aware of me and what I do for that then to help me create the furniture brand. And the most exciting thing is sort of happening this year, we're about to launch about 20 pieces of our own collection of the most extraordinary design I think I've ever done. So we are super excited to launch it hopefully later on this year. And how did you go about finding things like manufacturers for your own product? Because that's quite different from everything else you've been doing up until this point, I imagine. Yes, but we, we, we make a lot of furniture. And this was the reason that I wanted to do my own product brand because we design a lot of dining chairs, dining tables, armchairs, coffee tables. We do an enormous amount of light for our projects. We design a lot of, lot of, lot of stuff. But what, what Adobe's was, was about taking it to the next level with two things, either collaborate with very good brands and doing our own the collection that we produce and that we sell. And this collection that we're doing right now is basically, it's just like the best that we could do. I'm curious because you talked earlier, Martin, about how you know inside you when it's time to move on. And I'm wondering how you know when it's time to expand because 
I can't imagine you're ever sort of sitting around thinking, I don't have enough to do right now. I need more on my plate. So how do you know when it's right to add another arm to the business or create another part of what it is that you're doing? Mm. It, it, it sort of was, but I think when you get to a certain size, you sort of know that actually we're producing. And so you need to have produced a certain amount of work to sort of realise that it's time to do something else now. And, and furniture has always been in the back of our minds since day one I started this. And But then, we have done this um, since 2015 and with our collaborations and we have done a few pieces of our own already. So we sort of put that toe in the water and sort of made sure we understood because there's a lot to learn about designing a piece, having it made, making sure that it actually works, and then the whole logistics around it. And so we have spent the last five years really understanding that. And that's why we now finally are ready to do this big collection on our own, or, or sort of on our own, yes, on our own. And because uh, we understand everything around this now, we can do it hopefully very well. Can you tell us anything about what it's going to look like? Well, the concept is called Swedish Grace. It's based on that period in the 20s, the 30s in Sweden, where sort of modernity met classicism. And it's sort of like a Scandinavian version of Art Deco, but it's much more classical. So I've taken that as an inspiration, looking at architecture in Stockholm and just from growing up in Sweden. So it's almost my homage to my to my uh, origins. So, of course, you're still very much designing public spaces and we have to talk about Annabelle's, which opened in 2018 and was such a moment. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it all came together? That was actually a very fun project. And um, given this opportunity by, by Richard Caring just to do something so outlandish, well, it was incredible. And we did it all from beginning to end in 18 months, which is quite something for that extent of detail. But we had so much fun. Of course, we, you know, we had these internal design meetings where we were like, sort of saying, like, who can come up with the most ridiculous idea and let's make it happen? At certain stages, Richard had to tell me, like, to calm down a little bit because it was going a bit crazy. But it was so much fun. And I, for me personally, I sort of learned so much from that. So I sort of feel like very now very well-rounded as a designer because I sort of done, I've done sort of modernism, I've done classicism, you know, I've done minimalism, I've done maximalism, so now I have these sort of four pillars. I take a little bit from everywhere. So it was a very, it was, was a great project for many different reasons. I mean, talk us through some of those reasons. It was received so well. What were some of your favourite memories? Oh gosh, I mean, I think every space, everything we did there, I sort of, I mean, I sort of love it, it's sort of so much fun. Remember anything sort of specific? No, I, I could actually. There's a bar in the garden room on the ground floor at the back, and it has this sort of fountain with this sort of like various sort of classical fish that sort of sort of um, has a little fountain of water coming out of his mouth into a um, to a shell. And I think that was one of those sort of moments where we were like sort of we said yes, let's do that. Now, Martin, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for some sourcing secrets. Is there anywhere you're really into or that your team are really into at the moment? Well, I'm going to give you one little... Uh, actually, I bought a, bought a place in the country last year and I've been doing it up. So um, I've been sourcing a lot of furniture and there is a website called antiqueatlas.com, which is a good, great place to source antique pieces that are very affordable. Okay, great. I'll look it up. And Martin, I also like to ask all of my guests this. Have you ever had a master plan? If so... 
How close are you to it right now? Um, I sort of had an idea of what I wanted to do, but there was no timeline to it. So I, it, it wasn't a sort of document that I put down. It was more I would like to, I'm going to do, I want to set up a design, interior design company, and I uh, would like to move, eventually move into product as well. And that's sort of what I have sort of achieved. And, uh, but now it's sort of all hands on deck. And I can't imagine the pandemic really helps with any master plan either. What are you up to at the moment? Well, in the US, we're actually completing a very big project in Los Angeles. And it's a hotel called The Pendry, which has a private club element to it called The Brightly, which we're super excited about. We work on this project for like, I think it's like almost five, six years. So we're so excited it's coming now, finally to fruition. And we're going to see if all the design decisions we took worked out. Wow. What's it going to look like? Well, basically, it's, it's sort of this sort of 1950s Hollywood glamour done in a very contemporary way, which is not normally what you would do in, in, in New York, in, in L.A., um, it, because it's, L.A. is really about nature and sunshine and greenery. It's sort of very relaxed. So we wanted to give it a little bit of a big dose of glamour to it. So it's a very sort of glossy space, but fun and playful at the same time. Has it been, um, you know, fun to pull together? Where have you been sourcing stuff for it from? Well, well, we, we sourced all over, all over the world, really. But all the pieces we designed actually have been made in in the US, which is very exciting. Actually, a lot of it was made locally. Wow! And and sorry, whereabouts in LA is it? It's in West Hollywood. It's on the Sunset. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to see how that turns out. I'm sure the pictures will be absolutely amazing. And when, when do you think it will be finished? Uh, they're going to open in December, I believe. Brilliant. Oh, fantastic. So this, it should be relatively soon. Great. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, okay. Well, we're going to move on to the quick fire round section of this podcast, the home truth section. Martin, is there a hotel or restaurant that is your favourite place to stay or eat in the world? Sunset Tower in LA. And I love to eat in their restaurant, the grill room. Is there a website that you read or turn to or, or look at the most? Oh, gosh, uh, probably um, the Times app. <laughs> I read it every morning. <laughs> Fair enough. Did you pick up any new skills or hobbies during lockdown? New skills or hobbies? Uh, we did a bit more cooking. We started to experiment. Of course, the whole idea about spending part of the week in the country is about sort of as well starting to grow your own stuff and cooking with it etc so we start to experiment all that so getting into that that probably was the one thing but beyond that i mean i was sort of working all the way through it so it was like i didn't have any time really to um to dwell on things and lastly where can people engage with your work or find you on instagram oh well well, I have two Instagram accounts, my, my own one, which is one is Martin Brunitsky. And then, of course, it's the studios, MBDS. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. It was really nice to hear some of the stories behind some of those iconic places you've created. I can't wait to be um, in some of them again. Well, thank you. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime... Don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc. UK. 
and me on at Pitt McCormack. See you next time. This episode of Home Truth is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour.